We are in a series on the book of Colossians, and last week we looked at the first eight verses. And every time I preach through a book of the Bible, I'm reminded again that, you know, Scripture is loaded with so many incredible things that uh, it's pretty tough to take a big chunk of it at a time and just sort of plow through it. And so I made a decision several weeks ago that we would take our time and we would kind of make our way through this book and we would spend time on the things that are important. And uh, not just for the sake of getting through it, but I really want us to to focus on on some things that are so important um, to us and to our lives in Christ. Well, last week, we discovered that if we're to live a life that's worthy of the Lord uh, and pleasing to Him in every way, as Paul says in verse 10, we need to begin living in Christ. Living in Christ. We need to begin exhibiting faith and love and hope And we need to begin to grasp something of the power of the gospel, of this word of truth that Paul talks about. In other words, if we're to live the kind of life that Paul calls us to, and I believe the kind of life that God calls each of us to, we need to begin experiencing Christ at the center of our lives rather than simply on the periphery of our lives. We need to begin to experience Christ in the center of our lives. We need to understand that He is the one who determines both who we are and He determines what we do. We need to begin to see ourselves as those whom God has called and equipped to deliver the good news of the Gospel as well. To deliver to people who desperately need to hear it and to be transformed by it as well. That's our responsibility as Christ's followers, not just my responsibility as a paid professional Christian. All of us are ministers of the gospel. So beginning in verse 9, and if you don't have a Bible and you open up your program, we've printed the verses in there. Paul transitions from a greeting and words of thanksgiving to a specific prayer of intercession for these Colossians. Now this is an interesting prayer, and I studied it this week, and you read it, you realize that it's, it's... It's a prayer, but it's sort of like us saying to somebody, well, I prayed for you last week, and this is how I prayed for you. But then as you read through this prayer, you realize that as he recounts how he's prayed for the Colossians, he actually is praying for them. And it's a powerful prayer. It's an amazing prayer. And he begins his prayer in verse 9 by asking God to fill these Colossian believers with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. To be filled with the knowledge of His will, through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. What is God's will? And there's a light question to ask this morning. And I did share with the teachers this morning, and I'm not sure that I hear this kind of language so much anymore. You know, there was a book that came out in the 70s before some of you were born. It's called Decision-Making and the Will of God. There was all kinds of conversation when I was a young believer about knowing God's will. In fact, I went on a mission trip to Australia for three months, and we studied a book called Knowing God's Will for Your Life. In 15 easy steps, you can know God's will for your life. It wasn't quite that simple. But that seemed to be a lot of the stuff that we talked about back then. More specifically... What does it mean to know the purpose of God's will? To understand the purpose of God's will. This is not an easy question 
to answer. I came across a really honest response to this question recently. I want to share it with you. It's a response, I think, that most of us will be able to relate to. When the question was put to this young person about knowing God's will, this is how he responded. Knowing God's will seems like a difficult task, understatement of the century. It's such a big deal, and there is so much confusion. Because most people interpret the Bible to fit their agenda, or because they only hear those things from God that they want to hear, knowing God's will on certain matters seems to me almost impossible. Maybe it's me, maybe I lack understanding, or maybe I simply don't have enough faith. Have you ever felt this way in the process of decision-making, trying to discern what it is that God's calling you to do. I think we all have. At one time or another, every one of us, if we're honest, has questioned whether we can know God's will, whether we can truly understand what it is that God wants us to do in any particular situation or under any particular circumstances. We have all asked the question, haven't we? God, what is it that you want me to do? And if I were to ask each of you to define what it means to know God's will, we would have different responses to the question. If I were to ask each of you, what does it mean to know God's will? You would all articulate it differently. But I suspect, and this is the assumption that I make, for many of us, knowing or understanding the purpose of God's will is really about getting God's answer. That's really what it means For most of us, it's really about having the question answered, what do I do? What do I do? Given all the possible choices, which choice, God, do I choose? Give me your answer. And by the way, can I have that answer tonight because I'm really in a hurry? And this is really important. And I need to know at least by the end of the week, should I move? Should I not move? Should I marry? Should I not marry? Should I marry this person? Am I ready for a job change? And if I am, what does that mean? Where do I go? What do I do? Maybe this job that I have really doesn't fit me. God, what should I do? Should I do this? Should I do that? Should I do the other thing? And if the answer is yes, if it's not now, then tell me, God, when is it? When is it? Does this sound at all familiar I'm not sure that we ever articulate this stuff out loud, but I think this is sort of what goes on inside of us as we struggle, as we wrestle with knowing what God wants us to do. And unfortunately, and oftentimes tragically, many of us skip right over the most important question, the question of what God wants us to be, and instead we zero in on the less important question, what God do you want me to do? The most important question is God... Who do you want me to be? The secondary question is, God, what do you want me to do? Too many of us want God's answer for our circumstances rather than his answer for our character. Too many of us want God's answer for our itinerary rather than his answer for our integrity. You see, we want to skip over the being stuff. And we want to get to the doing in the Christian life, being always precedes doing. What kind of person, God, do you want me to be? That's the question that we need to be asking. What kind of person do you want me to be? Knowing and doing God's will always has ethical and behavioral 
implications. That is, being in Christ always leads to doing. But our doing always starts here. Our doing always starts in our heart. Knowing and doing God's will always requires us to bring our thinking and our acting together. It requires integrity. It requires character. The very things that we want to skip over to get to the doing of God's will. Well, in these verses, Paul teaches us about knowledge. And he teaches us that the highest kind of knowledge is not simply the knowledge of God, what God wants us to do. It's the knowledge of who God wants us to be at all times and in all circumstances. Paul says that God wants to fill us, to fill us with knowledge. Literally, and Paul invented a word here, super knowledge. I don't know how else to say it. He added a, a, a little prefix onto the beginning of this word, and it, and it takes knowledge to another level. So he's saying he wants to fill us with super knowledge, the super knowledge of his will. He wants to fill us with spiritual intelligence. Think of it that way, spiritual intelligence. And how will he do this? First, by giving us wisdom, the ability to have God's insight into situations. That's wisdom. The ability to have God's insight into situations. And then by giving us understanding, the ability to apply God's wisdom to all situations and all circumstances. You know, Paul in Philippians says that you and I who are in Christ have the mind of Christ. And what that means to me is that you and I begin to see things and to understand things and to perceive things in the same way that Jesus Christ does. That's powerful stuff. That doesn't mean that we become gods in some way. That means that Jesus imparts His Spirit to us in His heart, in His mind, and we begin to see things the way that He does. So understanding God's will, you see, is much bigger, it's much more expansive than simply asking the question, what do I do, or going to God to get an answer. It's more difficult than simply choosing a job, a place to live, or even a mate. To understand God's will is to understand who He wants us to be and how He wants us to grow and develop in Him. So if people say, how do I know God's will for my life? The answer is not, what do I need to do to figure it out? It's, what do I become? Who am I? Who, God, do you want me to be? What kind of person do you want me to be? doesn't mean that where we work or what we do or to whom we're married is not important. These are extremely important things. But what's more important to God is what's happening inside of us, in our heart, the transformational process that we are all in on some level. Well, as God continues to fill us with knowledge, the super knowledge of His will by giving us increasing spiritual knowledge and understanding, something incredible begins to happen. And all of us are somewhere in this process. All of us are. And this is what begins to happen. We actually begin to live in a way that honors God and is pleasing to Him. And sometimes it catches us by surprise. We think, wow, did I really just think that really positive thing? Did I actually offer to do that, to serve that person in that way? We begin to act like Christ. We begin to do the things, to think the things that He does. Which, by the way, is the goal of our faith. 
to become more like Him. So what are these things and how do we know if we're truly beginning to act like Christ? Paul says there's four indicators, at least four. And if you look at verses 10 through 12, you'll find them there. And here's the first one. We begin to act like Christ when we begin bearing fruit in every good work. Verse 10. When we live a life that's worthy of the Lord and pleasing to Him, our lives bear fruit. Our lives bear fruit. Fruit, good fruit, reveals a healthy tree. And in the same way, good works, fruitful works, reveal a healthy follower of Christ. People who sincerely follow Christ do the things that He did. Most of us know enough about faith to talk a good talk. But the question is, what do our actions reveal about our faith? What do the things we do say about who we are? Are our actions consistent with what we say and what we think? Are our actions consistent with what God is doing in our lives? And my fear, my frustration, is that we all have such a difficult time bringing this into alignment with what we do. You know, we know. We know what's right. We know who God wants us to be. We know what God wants us to do in certain situations and circumstances. And like Paul in Romans, we say, you know, I know what's right, but I can't seem to do it. That's the process that we're in, bringing these things together, bearing fruit in every good work. Notice, if you back up into verse 7, Paul doesn't praise these Colossian Christians simply because they've learned the truth from Epaphras. He praises them because they've acted on what they've learned. They've put their faith into action. And their faith is bearing fruit. It's having an effect. That's why he praises them. We're growing in the knowledge of God. Verse 10. This is the next indicator that we're acting more and more like Christ. Knowledge of God brings more knowledge and spiritual growth. And it goes on and on and on. And you probably hear comments like this. You know, why is it that every time I look at Scripture, I can read the same passage and I see something completely different? Or why is it that you would look at this and you would see something completely different, perhaps, than I do? It's because this resource is is infinite. And knowledge begets more knowledge. And it begets spiritual growth. And as one writer said, understanding and knowledge fuels holiness. And holiness deepens our understanding. You see, it goes round and round and round. And it's a wonderful process to be in. Our goal and our purpose as believers isn't simply, however, to gain more knowledge about God, which is one of the things that I don't like about small groups sometimes. We sit around and we try to garner more information about the Bible. Knowledge is okay. What's more important is that we take what we learn and we put it into practice. I'd much rather spend two years on one verse and figure out how to live into it than to spend two years going through the entire Bible just so we can say we've read through the Bible in two years. But that's not the point of my sermon. Our purpose, I've already said this, our goal is to become like Christ, to act like Jesus, to have His mind, to have His insight into the situations that we face in life, whatever they are. We will never get there in this lifetime. But this is the process that God has called each of us into. 
Another indicator that we're becoming more like Jesus Christ is this. We are being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might. Verse 11. Knowledge alone does not make us Christian. I don't care how much you know. My dad knew more about the Bible and probably still does than I will ever know. And this was before he became a believer because he was a voracious reader and he read the Bible and he knew everything about it. But until he became a follower of Christ, all that knowledge didn't mean anything. And you know, it's so amazing. I was at my folks this past week. just went up there on Thursday to spend some time with my mom. And as I was getting ready to leave on Friday morning, I heard my parents uh, having a, a devotional time. Now, to some of you, that may not sound like a big deal. That was the first time that I ever had heard my parents interacting over Scripture. My dad was reading, and then he was talking to my mom about what that meant to him. And she was talking to him, and I I sat in the hallway. I literally just sat there and listened, and uh, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. My dad's 85 years old, and what I heard was his desire to become more like Christ. Knowledge. It doesn't necessarily make us more obedient to God either, right? Because we know we don't always do. Ultimately, we need God's Spirit, His divine power in our lives so that we can live, so that we can be transformed, so that we can survive some of the stuff that comes our way. It's tough to be a follower of Christ in these days. It always has been. How do we do it? How do we get through? And in these verses, Paul acknowledges that you and I will face difficulties, adversity, affliction, and as he says, we will need what? Great endurance and patience. Where in the world do you learn endurance and patience? How can you muster that up? You can't. These are virtues that God gives us by His Spirit. It's the only way we get them. He instills them in us. And we also need the assurance that when we face difficult times, and many of you are facing or have faced very difficult times in your marriages, personally, physically, we need to know that God isn't only with us during those times, but He is in us and He is for us. He's on our side. He isn't just laying some stuff on us to teach us a lesson, but that He's with us in a very profound way and in us. His presence and His power is there to strengthen us and to give us everything we need to face whatever comes our way. And finally, we know we're becoming more like Christ when we are joyfully giving thanks to God. A joyful and a thankful heart pleases God. Joyful and thankful people are fun to be around, by the way, too. Joseph Stalin, you've heard about him. He considered gratitude a sickness suffered by dogs. It may have something to do with the way he treated the Russian people. For Christians, joyful gratitude is a basic tenet of our faith. Paul tells us that we're to live with grateful hearts, joyful hearts. Chesterton once remarked, when it comes to life, the critical thing is whether you take things for granted or take them with gratitude. Whether you take things for granted or you take them with gratitude. Thanksgiving and gratitude is more than a happy feeling. It's an action. It's a discipline into which we can all grow. If it weren't so, Paul would not have commanded us to give thanks in every situation. Those who are becoming like Christ experience God's grace intensely and they also 
show their gratitude for all that God has done for them. Gratitude, joyful thanksgiving, like every spiritual discipline, is hard. But cultivating it makes life richer, more joyful, and amazing. So I want to end with some questions for you just to think about as you leave this morning. Are you striving to live a life that's worthy of the Lord and pleasing to Him? And I don't mean necessarily on your own. Is it your desire? Is it what you want more than anything? Are you living your life in Christ? Are you allowing Him, as I talked about last week, to be the environment in which you practice your faith as opposed to simply the object of your faith? Are you living your life in Christ? Are you exhibiting hope and faith and love and the other fruits of the Spirit? Joy and peace and patience and kindness, self-control. Do you understand that doing God's will begins here and works its way out into our actions? Is your life producing good fruit? Is it producing fruit at all? Are you growing in your knowledge of God? Are you allowing God's Spirit to do His work in you and through you? Are you allowing God's Spirit to sustain you when things are difficult? Are you thankful for all that God has done for you in Christ? That He's rescued you, as Paul says in verses 13 and 14, that He's rescued you from the dominion of darkness, that He saved you, and that He's brought you into the kingdom of His Son, that He's transforming you, and in Him, Paul says, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Do you know the redemption that God offers? Have you experienced the forgiveness that He offers so freely? If you haven't, I encourage you to choose Christ today, to begin to live in Him and to live for Him, to allow the Spirit of God, of Christ Himself, to inhabit you and to change you and to transform your life. That is why we even bother to do this. And you know what's amazing? He's doing that. And He's done it in your lives, and I hear about it, and you testify to it, and it's wonderful. May you experience Christ in a powerful way this week and in the weeks ahead. May you know Him. May you experience Him. May you live in Him.